Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. If you're completely satisfied with your mandolin playing, you can zone out for the next 30 seconds. This won't help you. But if you're stuck and want to get on the fastest path to being a strong mandolin player, listen up. With so many different mandolin learning resources online, it's nearly impossible to know which ones are going to give you the best results. Going through all of those resources is guaranteed to waste some time, especially since many probably won't even work. My advice? Take the guesswork out of learning the mandolin with the Mandolin Treasure Chest, a comprehensive step-by-step guide to learning the mandolin. You'll find everything you need, from playing your first note, all the way to soloing in tons of different keys. Find the link in the show notes to get the full details. Take 20% off at checkout for a limited time only. Howdy, howdy, friends, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. And thank you, Jared, for that fabulous announcement. If you would like to take advantage of that savings, simply look in the show notes for today's episode, and you will find the discount coupon code and the expiration dates. So just look in the description. If you're on Apple Podcasts, it will be right there in the description. Same goes for Podbean and most of the other podcatchers. Or you can always go to grasstalkradio.com and scroll all the way down to this episode and click that, and you will find that coupon code and the information. I should also mention that throughout this episode, you're going to be hearing little bits and pieces of some music written by John Hartford. And I was graciously given permission to include a little bit of this music as intro and segue and outro music. And the fiddle player that you will be hearing is our guest today, Megan Lynch Chowning. Now, she is a world-renowned fiddle player. Came up in the contest scene, uh, born and raised in California, and like so many great traditional musicians, ended up in the Nashville, Tennessee area and has played professional. I'm not going to go through her entire bio. Uh, you'll hear about her as we get into this little discussion, and you'll, you'll also hear how I first ran across her. As I said in the, in the interview, which you'll hear, you know, it's hard to keep track of everybody. And I had never heard of Megan. I might have heard her play and didn't know it. That's always a possibility. But I, I wasn't familiar with her. And so we talk about how, how it is that I came to know who she was and uh, the whole thing. And we talk a lot about John Hartford. And we also talk about her, her philosophy of teaching and, uh, you know, some of the activities and things that she's involved in. It's a fascinating discussion. I hope you will enjoy it. So let's listen to a little bit of this uh, music uh, to take us into my conversation with Meg. Megan, welcome to the podcast. How's everything going? Thank you. It's going great. It's going really, really well. I feel like uh, 2021 is finally starting to uh, make a turn. 
finally starting to make a turn in a in a better direction, or at least that's what I'm saying in my mantra every morning when I wake up. Yeah, I've I've said that every day for a year. It hasn't happened yet, so I don't know, but I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, mm-hmm. we pretty much had a year with no picking. I mean, for the most part. Yeah, no kidding. A lot of people hurting. That's right. Um, but I'm with you there. You can uh, go back and listen to some of my past podcasts. I've sounded pretty depressed. Oh, back in <laughs> May and June and July, you know. And it was mm-hmm. so funny when I started out the first episode I did of 2020, I titled 2020 Vision. And I got on there talking all about now's the time. Start planning for those festivals. Get your camping gear out. You know, there's all this stuff. And, and then, you know, there I was eating my words just a couple months just later sitting on your tent out in the front yard crying i know i get it i told in the little intro um of this episode mm-hmm. i said a few things about who you are but if you don't mind just for the listeners sure. just walk us through just exactly who are you how you got started who am i who oh. are you the uh the literal and the existential question of the year um i am megan lynch chowning and uh the chowning uh added in the last few years when i got married to my husband adam but um i grew up in northern california i was i was born in the bay area in the east bay and then was reared in redding california just at the uh, the bottom of Mount Shasta there up near the Oregon border. And I started playing the fiddle when I was four years old. And then I started teaching the fiddle when I was 14 years old. Uh, let me and, break in and ask you something. Yeah. Did your parents play or uh, did you grow up in a household full of musicians? Or, or I just... grew up in a household, uh, several generations of music lovers. Uh, my my grandfather was from West Texas and um, loved Bob William, Bob Wills and Jimmy Rogers more than life itself. Mm-hmm. And I uh, spent a lot of time with him. He was, uh, we were really close to that part of the family. And so I listened to a lot of those records. Nobody in my family played the fiddle. My mother played piano, but had quit, you know, in her teenage years, but she had always assumed that I would play piano. She, she felt very strongly that music was a necessary part of education. You go to school, you go to science class, you go to math class, all of that. And you also learn an instrument. That was, that was non-negotiable in my household. Yeah, and, my um, house too. I'm, right. That was just, it was part of being a well-rounded citizen of the world. And so she assumed piano because that was what she did. And that was her frame of reference. And she figured I would start at about seven, eight or nine years old. Cause again, that was her frame of reference, but I grew up in, well, I grew up in Reading, but before we moved to Reading, we spent a few years in a tiny, tiny, and I mean, you know, maybe thousand people, 1500 people town outside of Reading called happy Valley. I don't know how happy it was. <laughs> it was a, um, a pretty poor rural community and my dad really wanted to live the country life, you know, so he bought a couple of acres and some chickens and some ducks. And, oh, boy, he was um, he, he was born and raised in Oakland. And um, this was a um, bit of a back to the land experiment that was, um, I wouldn't 
wouldn't call it a total failure, but I wouldn't call it a success either. <laughs> and I will say that my parents' marriage did not survive it. So <laughs> that too, but we moved to Happy Valley. And so there I am in the Happy Valley primary school, kindergarten through fourth grade. And my kindergarten teacher, I started kindergarten early. I have a late birthday. My birthday is in December. So I started when I was um, just four um, in kindergarten. And I, I got I got into that kindergarten class and this kindergarten teacher was so amazing. And, you know, just one of those great teachers. And she sent a note home to my mom and said that said, you know, your daughter is uh, an advanced reader for her age. And I just read a thing that says that kids who are good readers also tend to have an ear for music. And we have a free strings program in the school. Now that tells you about how old I am. Um, that there are such things as free right. string programs in the schools. And um, my mom heard that and heard free and heard, you know, music lessons. And she was like, all right, let's do this thing. So I started in October of my kindergarten year. And it just so happened that the man who was teaching the strings program, Dr. Bill Jacoby, um, he had a PhD in violin performance and he was a classical guy and all of that. But he was also uh, a great, great lover of the fiddle. And his daughter, Jana Jacoby, who was exactly 10 years older than I was, so she was 14 right at that time, that summer, she had become the first woman and the youngest ever to win the Grand Masters Fiddle Championship in Nashville. So... Yeah, it was it was really an incredible thing that he was just there teaching. You know, I'm sure yeah. he taught at a group of schools, you know, throughout the the area, but ours was on his on his um, you know, on his route. And so we would learn I kid you not, we would learn like minuet and G, and then we'd learn old Joe Clark. Yeah. And then yeah. we'd learn the Gavotte, and then we'd learn Arkansas Traveler. And so from the very beginning, I had this really broad introduction to all things that you can do with this instrument. And that was October. By February, he had talked to my mom and said, you know, there's a really strong fiddle association in this area and they're having a contest. And I think, I think Megan could be ready for it. And my mom said, that's insane. And he <laughs> said, but you know, she knows three tunes. And my mom said, well, barely. And, and so I went and I competed and it was a 12 and under division. And I was five, I had just turned five and I got, I don't know, 26th place or something, you know, <laughs> and I thought that was the best, most amazing thing that could ever be. And my mom met some, you know, some cool parents and, um, you know, some fun people. It was, you know, it was the late seventies. It was like, there was fiddling at, you know, I think there was probably, you know, some good parties after the fiddle contests and, you know, things yeah. like that, that my parents thought were pretty fun. And then, you know, I went into another fiddle contest a few, a few months later and they had an eight and under division and I got second place. And then a month later I competed in another one and I won and I got $10. And at that point you could not pry me from the fiddle. That was it. I was, I was, committed you're a professional and i was yeah oh yeah i was i was on the road and actually <laughs> i did go on the road shortly thereafter i joined a kids fiddle group that summer i started taking lessons from evelyn horner 
who is a fantastic, she is still alive. She, we did a reunion with a bunch of her students a few years ago. She's still, she's in the Ashland, Oregon area and is still leading a Western swing group. She's like 90, she's amazing. And um, she taught me how to make harmonies. We, we toured, we went all over the country, uh, performed everywhere. I wore a red and white gingham checked outfit and played train medleys and sang Bob Wills songs, you know? <laughs> I mean, what, what more could you ask for in a childhood, I ask you? That's you a beautiful know? thing. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. And I, um, the, other, the other part of that story that I think is really important important is that and I I'm kind of I, I for me it's really important to highlight the people that I feel like had an impact on those communities because that has dovetailed into everything that I care about now but Jana Jay who um many people will know from from her days on Hee Haw mm -hmm. and she was married to Buck Owens for about five minutes and whatever <laughs> and she's still around and touring and and has camps and is judging contests and and runs her own contest she is a force she came to Redding California in 1970 I think it was 74 might have been 76 but it's right in there uh and substitute taught the string class there was a like a classical string class at the community college but that professor had to go on sabbatical. She came and taught a fiddle class for one semester and it ignited the entire Redding, California fiddle community. And for many, many years after that, Redding had more state and national fiddle championship uh, champions from there than anywhere else in the country. It was, it was massive. Everybody I knew played the fiddle. It was just what you did in right. Redding, California. So that made a big difference in terms of my staying with it, you know, just, it was such a part of the community. It was what we did, you know? Yeah. That, um, that is just, it, it makes me think there is such a thing as destiny. Some of the things oh, you've I mentioned. Know. It feels so fate. Like in many ways, I, um, there are so many elements, you know, because of course, as soon as I started playing my grandfather that I mentioned, who loved that music, he got on board in such an amazing and um, non-stage parenty, but he walked that line of being so encouraging, so just behind me all the way, and just always playing those records, playing those records. And I, you know, the first time I met met and played with Mel Tillis years later, you know, I of course wished desperately that my grandfather was still alive, but I. I remember feeling so prepared for that moment because, you know, I go to play, you know, some kickoffs with Mel Tillis or, you know, whoever, and I can just hear all of those sounds in my head from the time I was born with my grandfather playing those records and making sure that I had all of those, you know, all those on the tape recorder in my brain, <laughs> you know? So yeah. I just, all of those things came together for me in, in an incredible way. And also I loved it. So I sought it out too, you know? Right. There's, right. there's certainly both sides of the equation. It's amazing how many people who are on a stage or in the forefront of, you know, the public eye, there's, there's always someone or several people who helped them get there that you never hear about, you know, and it's usually That's mom, right. dad, uncle, brother, cousin, you know, and it's, there's, 
my dad was like that in a way, and he didn't, he couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. And I've, I've talked mm-hmm. about it on one of the podcasts about how many countless instruments that man bought oh. for, to, to have never played one himself, you know, four kids growing up playing music. And he was behind us very silently, but just making sure. And same with my mother, you know. Anyway. Yeah, I, I know I, I am, I, I sometimes, you know, I, I focus a lot on trying to get some of the tangential characters. Now, to leave my mother out of the equation is the, would be the most unfair thing because, you know, she with her avocado green, 72, Monte Carlo, <laughs> running up and down the road. And, you know, of course, my parents divorced when I was eight, and I was still very, very close to my dad growing up. But still, you know, for all intents and purposes, she was a single mom making, you know, as a bookkeeper and making a bookkeeper's wage and that kind of thing. But making sure that I got to every possible event, making sure that I had a decent instrument, making sure I had the lessons. And I, I can't, I can't. I know I mostly teach adults now. That's the, I would say probably 75% of my student base is adult. And, and I know how much they struggle with the fact that they didn't learn as children. And right. there, there will always be some, some ceilings on that in that regard for them. And, and, and I think back to how much being able to play the fiddle has shaped my life. And I think about the sacrifices that she made, the time that she put in, all of that. And, you know, I mean, to be fair, she loved it. You know, she had a great time and she had a ton of friends and all that kind of thing. But, but the focus and the commitment, here's the other thing. People always think that because I was a quote, you know, child prodigy fiddle contest winner, whatever kid, that it was just all sunshine and rainbows getting me to practice all of that kind of thing. It was a nightmare. I was the worst. I, I, cried and carried on and oh my god i i did one time i was probably 11 maybe 12 and i was a latchkey kid for about an hour and a half two hours between when i got home from school and when my mom got home from work Mm -hmm. and so the deal was you know get your homework done get your practice in all that kind of thing and I was supposed to record on a cassette my practice session, 30 minutes of fiddle, 30 minutes of classical. Ah, That was the rule. And then my mom would listen to them while she was making dinner, you know, and just, it was just an accountability thing. Right. It occurred to me at some point that all I needed to do was just change the date (laughs) at the beginning of the cassette. And it took her, I think, about three days to notice that I was making the same mistake in the same place every <laughs> single time. That's hilarious. But yeah, I was, I was always trying to get out of things, and always, you know. So the fact that she stayed on me about that kind of thing, and I mean, she wasn't mean about it, but it was just, this is what we do. We, you know, we we strive for. Um, consistency and you know you practice because you do your homework and you brush your teeth and it's part of the deal you know hey um, let me ask you did you have so, any, yeah. any brothers and sisters nope I, it okay. was just me and my mom and the fiddle and um, and my awesome dad my dad was great but you know every other weekend kind of thing and yeah. um, you know he would come to events and things but no no siblings okay. um, and you know I don't know who, we can always who can speculate about how that would have affected things because 
whatever sibling that might have come along would have been good at something different, you know, and then mm-hmm. the time would have been split. I do think that it it helped in some ways because my mom was able to put her focus on one kid with one set of, you know, right. projects and events yeah. and, you know, pursuits. Yeah, and she had a lot on her hands, it sounds like. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah. She sure did. Well, that's, I was just curious because, you know, there's, you just never know. Sometimes, you know, people have five, five or six brothers and sisters who are all doing exactly. all that stuff. Exactly. And I've taught many of those families. I know them. And I have, I have yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've been, we've been all up and amongst the family bands, you know. And I think that's another interesting thing is that maybe, you know, who knows how much of this is genetic, how much of this is because of my upbringing, but it took me a long time to get good at being in a band because, you know, Mm. as you well know, and I'm sure you've talked about on the podcast, being in a band is an entirely different skill than playing the fiddle. You know, it's a whole different thing. And I think not having siblings was a bit of a challenge for me than going into being in an ensemble, you know, and learning to give and take. I'm not a great sharer, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not one of my strong suits. And then to add, to put on top of that, I was a contest fiddler. I, and that is a singular pursuit, you know, everything revolves around me getting to do the best job that I can do in that four minutes or whatever on stage. And, you know, so then going into a band and, and learning to not play that, that sounded crazy. Yeah, yeah. What are you talking about? There's a part where I don't play. What is this? <laughs> yeah. I've, I've run you know? into a lot in the bluegrass world where, you know, there are people that, that participate in both things. Maybe they're more heavily into the contest scene or they're mm-hmm. into the bluegrass thing. And, you know, sometimes somebody would get chosen, Hey, we need a fiddle player. And they bring this guy in. He's an amazing fiddle player has no clue of, you know, just right. does, mostly looks bored and, yes. and then, well, okay, we've got to get him to do something. So what do you want to play? And he launches into some tune that we don't know. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, they are two different <laughs> worlds, even though they do overlap clearly a little bit. Well, yeah, but it's just, it's certainly, um, the skills are very similar, but the mindset is very, very different. And I think back to your original <laughs> question, which is, who am I? I would say that, you know, part of that, part of that answer is also that I am a person who is constantly trying to understand the mindset that best fits the job at hand. And so I have made a living working on that when I, you know, I went to, went to college and, you know, on some music scholarships and things like that, even though I didn't have at the time, didn't have any interest in doing that. I, but it was where I got the free money, you know, so you got to do it. And then, um, kind of bounced around, did a bunch of things, um, worked on, uh, commercial boats in the San Francisco Bay and, um, but always kept coming back to teaching, always kept coming back. You know, people would still call me for gigs here and there. And and I kept trying to avoid it. And it just kind of wouldn't let me go. And then when I was, well, when 9-11 happened, I was living in Palo Alto. Um, 
And I had a, an aha, a personal aha moment, which was that I felt very strongly that everyone, you know, when, when catastrophic things happen in the world or, you know, in your personal life, whatever, you need to sort of stop and say, okay, what is the universe trying to tell you? You know, what is, what's the thing I need to be seeing? Um, I think it was, I can't believe I'm going to quote Oprah, but you know, here we are. Uh, <laughs> Oprah always said, you know, your inner voice starts with a whisper and then it gets a little louder. And then eventually, if you don't listen, it will shout at you. And I felt like the universe was sort of shouting at all of us in some ways to, to reevaluate some things. And I thought, I need to, I need to play bluegrass. I need to improvise. I need to get away from everything being planned ahead. And I need to know more about these other genres, these other traditional genres before it's too late. And, and also that this is a sign that I need to be interacting with other people. I need to take a, a shift in my role as a fiddle player. I need to learn more. And so I had heard a boat captain that I worked with played guitar and she had told me about this East Bay picking party um, over in, that kind of moved around from house to house. And I called my mom and I said, I'm going to go to this thing and I don't know what I'm doing, but I just feel like I need to go. Will you come with me? And she said, of course, you know, and my mom was always up for an, yeah. a, a yeah. music event. Oh my God. So we, we went there and I, and it, it was very clear to me that there, there were three jams going on kind of in this backyard sort of spread out. And it was very obvious that there was a big, like it was a Goldilocks thing. You know, there was a beginning, a middle and a, and an advanced jam, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, here's the smart move. Just go right for the middle, you know, cause I'm not a beginning player, obviously, but my understanding of bluegrass is, eh, you know, I had played in a bluegrass band for about six months in college, but you know, that'd been a while. And yeah. So I went into that middle jam and I'm just, I'm just watching and I'm just using every possible sense that I can to absorb what's happening, what's expected of me, all that kind of thing, trying to figure out how verbal I can be in terms of asking questions and then what I should just be trying to glean, you know. And after about 30 minutes, somebody from the advanced jam came over and invited me over there. And I was like, all right, this is, I've, I've made it. I've, you know, I've got it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, yeah. only did, you know, it took me a long time to realize that uh, I, that was only the beginning of my journey, but it was, it was really 2001. And th then I went to a bluegrass festival later that year, a couple months later, um, started jamming, you know, till the break of dawn. And then I started going to two jams a week for like two or three years. And I joined a band and, joined another band and you know all of that kind of thing then i uh got invited to move to nashville to play with a band um with three fox drive and uh with kim fox and and that bunch and they had seen me at a festival moved to nashville in 2005 um you know we played the opry did all that kind of thing but then our record label died and it, it you know those <laughs> things kind of they sort of you know fall apart mm -hmm. and then i got i got it uh, a message on MySpace, thank you, MySpace, um, from Pam Tillis's manager asking me to come audition. I went and auditioned, um, quote unquote, got the gig, then went out on the road for a couple weeks, went to South by Southwest and did a couple things. And then 
found out that I didn't really have the gig, that somebody else had the gig already, but they were just looking for me to fill in. And so I thought I was in Pam Tillis's band. Turned out I wasn't really. So, but then I started touring with Bill Evans. Uh, we were doing our duet and we were kind of doing progressive bluegrass duet stuff, fiddle and banjo and yeah. made a record. And that did really well for us. And, and then Pam Tillis called back two years later and really wanted me to be in the band full time and wanted me to do this trio thing. And I just, I was so overwhelmed by the opportunity to not have to book my own gigs, not have to send workshop descriptions, not have to add things to my own calendar and just show up and get on a bus. That just felt so uh, tempting, you know? And yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot like this has happened in my life. I've had about half of my adult life. I have been employed and the other half mm -hmm. I've been self-employed and right. every time I've made the transition one way or the other, I've always thought this is the greatest thing ever. You know, I'm going to be self-employed. Exactly. Oh, thank God. Oh. I don't have to do all that, 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 That's that, exactly that. it. And then after a few years, oh. you're like, Oh God, I just need a regular job. Just, you know, give me a time yes. clock, you know? Totally, totally, <laughs> totally. I, I really, um, I remember walking, I distinctly, I remember walking around the Opry Mills Mall and I had been going over this in my mind for months because I knew that the Pam gig, at that point, she had had cancer actually in 2007. And so her schedule was not, because she was coming back, recovering and just kind of easing, you know, easing back into a full touring schedule. So at that point, she was only doing about 30 dates a year and Bill and I were doing 40, 50 dates a year. So I was able to kind of pull it off. But there was another girl in the wings gunning for that Pam gig. And there are not very many country gigs in Nashville with full-time fiddle in it. And so the, the competition is fierce for those things. And I knew that that girl wanted my gig. <laughs> and yeah. I knew that, and nobody had said it out loud, but I could read the room, you know, and I... I knew that it was going to come down to picking one or the other. And I talked my friends, my parents, everyone's ear off about what am I going to do, whatever. And we ran off three mills and my friend said, what do you want? And I said, I want to ride on fancy buses and go on <laughs> tours and play for lots of people and not have, and he's like, okay, great. Then make the call, just do it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. you know. And then of course, as you said, you know, a few years goes by and I was like, I, kind of want to be in charge of my own destiny again right, you know right. and so yeah so it's been it's certainly been a back and forth at this point i have found my my happy place i've found my combination of things but you know i'm 46 one would hope <laughs> you know <laughs> no, sure. you're, you're young just yeah. just oh a god i have more more dithering to do oh no <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me let me change gears now. Now that we sure. we brought you to Tennessee, yeah, and, you know, Here we are. Told us a little bit about some of what you're doing there. Mm -hmm. um, what brought me to really? I didn't even know who you were. I, I had never heard sure. of you until I don't know three months ago. Mm -hmm. You know, shame on me. I don't, you know, I really yeah. don't. I'm not a great fan. We can't fan. know everyone. You that's, can't know everyone. That's Forget a fact. it. <laughs> and, you know, 
if I just tried to keep track of all the fiddle players in the world, it would be impossible. You know, it's like Wait. I can't keep track of everything, you know. No, there's there's 24 of them on Broadway right now. They're all wearing short shorts and they're all named Megan. So, you know, it's yeah. you, where would you even start? So so I see uh, one day I'm on uh, Bluegrass Today, the sure. website, you know, looking at it and da 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 da. And there is a little announcement there talking about the three by five cards. The, mm -hmm. the John Hartford three by five cards. Now I won't tell you my whole backstory because it would take way too long and everybody pretty much on the podcast has already heard it, but I saw Hartford play probably the first time around 77 mm -hmm. when he was flying solo. He would be at a lot of bluegrass festivals, but he was doing the one man show, the plywood guitar, fiddle, banjo, you yep. know, that was even before his son was playing bass or, or, or there could have been somebody else played. Anyway, it was just solo gig, and he was the coolest thing ever. And I saw him many times during those years. And then, you know, fast forward, fast forward, I was at the very last concert he ever did in Atlanta, and I don't remember mm -hmm. the year. I It was the year he, he passed away. But he played in, at the Red Light, in Atlanta, and of course I went. And you know, anytime Hartford was around, I'm going to go. You know, mm -hmm. and, and in between those two bookends, we played festivals where he was there. And, you know, had a few opportunities to just meet him and stuff. You know, like I think we played Merle Fest in '86 when when nobody wanted to play Merle Fest. You know, right? Those, those sorts of things. <laughs> um, anyway, so that was the bookends. And it was always a big fan of the whole the whole trip, you might say, because sure. it was it was different. And I was, mm -hmm. you know, banjo player, but also bluegrass mantle player and teaching and doing all these different things. But I never got over that, you know, that low strung banjo. And then in the later years, it was just fiddle, 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 fiddle. Yeah. Like, and it really got me more interested in the fiddle. Well, anyway, so a couple months ago. Uh, about seven, eight months ago, a fiddle-playing friend of mine, I'm up at his house, looking around at his books and stuff, and we're talking. We've just been picking for about five hours, and I see on the bookshelf, John Harford Mammoth Collection. I'm like, oh, you got this book? I wanted to order that book, and I didn't. Let me look at this thing. I sit down, I'm thumbing all through it. He's like, just take it. Just take it. It's yours. I'm like, no, no, Mike. I'm not taking your book. I'll order one. So anyway, I spent the night at his house. I got up the next morning. We're eating breakfast. He said, oh, I got something for your son, my 12-year-old son. You give this mm -hmm. to Jackson. And he pulls the book out and hands it to me. <laughs> so that was Mike Estes, fiddle player. Mm -hmm. And he's mm -hmm. all into the contest thing too, by the way. But um, I don't want to burn up too much time. But in that book, I saw these cards. And I'm like, what's with the three by five cards? I've been addicted to three by five cards as a note-taking device for 25 years. And I, I did not know about the vest. I didn't know about the cards and the obsession with the cards and his system and the whole thing. I didn't know anything about that until the little announcement on Bluegrass And yet Today. here you are running a parallel track. 
you know, similar. I'm sure it's all customized. You know, I well, never, I never had a vest or anything. Everyone's brain is customized, so you know. <laughs> so I got on there and I ordered two sets of these. They're just examples of his cards. From you're going to tell us more about these, but I ordered two sets: one for me and one to give to Mike, who gave mm, me the book. Yeah. So I sent them up there, and uh, what I, I first of all, I want to know: are they still available? Oh, yes, they are still available. Um, Tell us about them. Well, how did they come to be? Why, why, why why does this set? What is happening? Why is it available? Why is it there? It is, it's been such an interesting journey. I will tell you, I, I saw John Hartford do his solo gig one time in my life. Uh, It was 1986 at the Strawberry Music Festival. Mm Um, I, I was 11. I did not care one whit about it. (laughs) It did not interest me in what, in any way, shape or form. And I've told Katie, John's daughter, who is a close friend of mine. I've told her this a thousand times. She thinks it's hilarious. (laughs) Newgrass revival was also performing at that same festival. Now that I cared about, <laughs> that I cared about, but I went and saw the John thing. But at that time, I was such a heavy-duty contest Texas-style player, and I was a kid. And those two things together made it so that what John was doing wouldn't make sense or grab me at that time at all. Now, looking back. I get it. I totally get it. And I can actually sort of recreate that moment and go, oh, my God, that was amazing. But at the time, I was like, I don't, there's a hat and a board and he's dancing. And I don't, you know, and I didn't really like old time style fiddle at that time. And, you know, all of that. So I just sort of brushed it aside. And then years later, here I am in Nashville. And uh, my very best friend in the whole world is a graphic designer not only that, she was my touring partner with Pam Tillis and Lori Morgan uh, for many, many years. She's an incredible musician, human being person. And she called me and she said, I just got a design gig that is going to crack you up. And I said, really, what? She said, I'm designing this fiddle tune book. And I said, what? Why are you designing a fiddle tune book? And why don't I know about it? She said, I don't know. It's a John Hartford fiddle tunes. And I said, that is crazy. That's so amazing. And like 24 hours later, I get a call from Katie, uh, John's daughter, Katie Hartford Hogue. And she says, Hey, I just spoke with Mary Sue. And she said that you might be a person to copy edit this book that, you know, you've done copy edit work, but that you're a fiddle player and that you would be a good choice because you'd be, you know, you'd have the the mix of skills that we need, you know? And, I said, I would love to. So it always makes me laugh that I actually got the gig working on the book, not because of my fiddling or anything, but because my best friend was the designer. It was a, you know, purely networking thing. So anyway, destiny, just all coming together. And so as we were getting toward the end of the book, you know, the, the design part and, and all of the, the transcriptions had been chosen. Matt Combs did a, an amazing job going through all of those, uh, you know, thousands of tunes to get down to the 176. But at that point, Katie was looking at some of the different design elements that she wanted to include. And she said, you know, dad always 
filed everything in three by five cards, everything from his grocery list to, um, you know, just whatever packing lists for, for gigs or, uh, ideas for songs or whatever. And she said he had a bunch of them that he called fiddle devices that were just all the little tidbits of things that he learned about playing the fiddle from the various and sundry people that he, you know, because John, and, and a lot of people will tell you this, John practically stalked, you know, the fiddlers that he loved that last 20 years of his life. He would not let them rest. He showed up at their houses. He wrote them letters. He did, you know, because he cared so much about the workings, the inner workings of different fiddle styles and, and different players that he admired. And she said, I think it would be really cool if we just kind of put a collage of some of those cards together uh, in the, you know, inside covers. She said, would you be willing to just sift through them and find the ones that kind of sift, that, that sort of stand out for you um, as a teacher or, you know, as somebody who is a student of the fiddle that you think people would, you know, kind of resonate with. And I said, mm -hmm. I, you know, yeah, of course. So she, you know, plonks, hands me this, you know, stack of hundreds of, of these fiddle devices. And I just kind of sat at Mary Sue's kitchen table and, oh, this one's cool. This one doesn't make any sense. This one's illegible. Oh, that's, this is interesting. Or this is funny, you know, or whatever. And we got to the point where we had, you know, 30 or some odd or whatever to make a nice little collage. And then, and then that was that. And it was more of just a design thing for the book. And then as they got ready to do the Kickstarter for the album that now exists as a result of the book. So the book is the 176 tunes that span his, you know, writing of fiddle tunes over, you know, 20 some odd years. Then the album comes together, the John Hartford Fiddle Tune Project, and they decide to do a Kickstarter to kind of fund the record because we, you know, Katie wanted all sorts of different musicians on it, and and she got them. And it, it, I mean, I'm I'm on there, so of course I'm biased, but I think it's an amazing album, and it is nominated for a Grammy. So I feel like other people seem to think that it's a good album too. But, Apparently so. <laughs> um, in the meantime, she said, you know we could do something with these cards as part of a reward for the Kickstarter. Cause you know, when you do uh -huh. the Kickstarter, it's like, Oh, $10 donation, you yeah. get an album, $20, et cetera. And she said, so now would you be willing to go through and find more cards um, that you think would, would work? And at that point, um, my dear friend and uh, musical partner and um, you know, business partner, Tristan Scroggins, great mandolin player um, had been working for Katie archiving a lot of the Hartford stuff um just you know all sorts of things pictures drawings you know all the things that mm -hmm. you can imagine um would be part of the John Hartford milieu it's yeah. uh it's overwhelming and so they had scanned a bunch of the cards already um for the um you know to put in the collage but Tristan had scanned you know hundreds thousands probably over time and so she sent me this Dropbox folder and said, pick out however many, you know, and we ended up with 88, but um, I always thought it was kind of funny that we had fiddle cards that were the same number as piano keys. But right. anyway, yeah. so in, with 88 cards, I, I just went through and, and, and I wanted to get a cross section of um, styles 
you know, because John loved Texas style. He loved West Virginia old time. He loved North Carolina old time. He loved Midwestern fiddling, of course, you know, with his Missouri background and um, that kind of thing. Um, And he loved Tennessee fiddling, which is its own thing. And so I wanted to get a cross section of, of tidbits about different styles. I wanted things about left hand and right hand stuff. I wanted, you know, I just wanted it to be a broad representation of all of the things that he had jotted down all of his observations. And so then that became a reward for the Kickstarter. And then once the Kickstarter was over, the album was funded, the album was made, there were leftover cards because, you know, you get a bulk discount for ordering a certain amount. We Mm -hmm. weren't sure how many. And so then Katie said to me, you know, um, these should be available and we have these extra ones and they shouldn't just sit in a box. So why don't you take them and offer them to, you know, your students, whatever. And of course, uh, John Lawless picked up on it uh, from Bluegrass Today. And so, yeah, I do still have uh, some left and they were just, were, and I don't know, I don't know that they will ever be reprinted because there's a, you know, John's family gets to decide what of his is out there and they get to, and that's the way it should be, right? They should have the control over, um, you know, what materials, what albums, what all that kind of stuff. And so I don't know if there will, if it's something that will ever be um, just widely available and, you know, and anyone can, but right now what we've got left is there. And uh, yeah, so people can always holler at me. Um, and it's, they're all, you know, they are the cards, they're reproduced exactly as John uh, wrote them, including the cover card that has a water stain on it right. from where he dripped right. on something. <laughs> and, and not only that, but the cards come with what he called his three by five manifesto. Um, <laughs> such a, it's a bold choice of words. It, we think of manifesto. <laughs> I'm so glad that you included this thing. This thing is it reminds me there was a guy named timothy dexter and i'm just i'm not going to talk about timothy dexter other than say look up timothy dexter's book that's all i'm gonna say and it's sort of in that style timothy dexter everyone now tell us about this manifesto i didn't know this existed i'm so thankful that you included it with these cards it's it is a piece of work you have to and so Terry Comer, uh, and it says on the cover of it that, you know, this we're grateful to Terry Comer for preserving this. Terry Comer is a man that we call the bluegrass dentist. Um, everybody goes to Terry Comer when they move to town, especially. He is a banjo player, great lover of bluegrass. He's down in the Franklin area, just south of Nashville. And, um, you know, Casey Henry, the banjo players, worked for him as a receptionist. And, oh, Sandra Block. Um, Ron Block's wife worked there and you know so he's got all of these you know people who work in the office that are connected to bluegrass and then when you go in the chair you you know you kind of go back and then he asks you if you want you know Flat and Scruggs, Stanley Brothers you know whatever and you look at pictures of Earl like up on the ceiling when you're in the dentist chair and Jerry Comer um, held on to his copy of this 3 by 5 card manifesto which was a presentation that John Hartford did at IBMA talking about his 
filing system and his note taking system. And, and it is, it, it's in the exact font that he typed it in. It's, it, it look, it's exactly his thing. We just copied it from John's, from John's copy. And it is so in his voice. I mean, it, when you read through it, you can hear it coming out of his mouth. It's absolutely fantastic. And it explains how to do the system, why the system is important, and how to live a, a three by five card life. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just great. It's, it's so, just pure genius. I, to me, it makes the whole thing. You know, it really does. It does, and I, I want to say this too. And these cards, for anybody who might be curious about them, it, it, don't think that you're going to learn to play the fiddle from these cards, or you're going to learn, you know, some hot licks or it's not an instructional thing. I mean, it nope. is, and it isn't. It's more, I, I think it's more like, um, like a religious relic, like, a, you know, a lock of some saint's hair. Sure. That its real purpose is inspirational, not instructional, although there are clearly instructional things in yes, it. Yes, but I think that that's an important distinction. It is, to me... Because I spend, you know, now I'm, I'm off the road. I, I quit being on the road full time back in 2013. And now I do tours uh, when I feel like it, because I, because I can, and because it's fun. And I tour with, you know, Adam Hurt, the great Clawhammer banjo player, and I do some solo things and, you know, whatever. But I think that what I spend most of my time doing now, because education has become my you know, it's always been my passion. It's just that I finally, you know, sort of stopped and decided that it is my passion. Um, what, what I see in those cards is the inner workings of someone's brain because, yeah. and I say this to my students all the time, any, any way that you want to learn to play the fiddle is fine, but you have to pick a way. You have to choose a path and get on it. There's a hundred great paths to learning to play the fiddle, but these cards for me, it's like the watching a man choose a path, you know, and for him, the path was to write these little tidbits down that sparked a memory for him that then when he would go to play, he'd go, oh yeah, that's right. Texas Shorty. I remember he does that bowing pattern right there. Yeah. Oh, you know, Ed Haley. Oh, he liked to do this little bouncy bow kind of thing. That's right. To me, it's about seeing someone's path laid out. And then that may not be your path, but it is a reminder that we need one, you know, and, and John Hartford being the creative genius that he was, I think it's a pretty inspiring thing to see what his path looked like on paper. Yeah. And you said it's a reminder. It's, it's to me, it, it's also a reminder that we need reminders because so many things oh, right. can go in one ear and out the other, jotted down and then tossed in the trash. And yep. I, I'm often, when I'm at a loss for material for the podcast or lessons or whatever, digging through old boxes and I come across these notebooks or this unfinished project, you know, or a, like yes. a book that I got five pages into and didn't complete and I'll read it again. And this might be 15 years after I started it. You need these reminders because sometimes you have these brilliant observations or creative thoughts or 
and you lose them if you don't jot them down. It's like, if I come up with a good song title, I'm going to write that thing down. I may never exactly. write the song, but I'm going to write the title down, you know? Well, and, and who knows what that title will lead you to 10 years from now. I, you know, I teach 20 to 25 private students a week, and then I teach over 70, about 70 people through two weekly Zoom workshops every week at this point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm interacting with close to 100 people a week. And I, I cannot possibly remember all of the important things that I need to share with them. I can't, it's just not, it's not possible. And so I have actually gotten kind of my own system in place and, and the three by five cards were a bit of an inspiration for that because it, it may be, I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. Uh, my friend, Brandon Godman, who runs the fiddle mercantile out in San Francisco, just started a, an every other week online um, sort of salon type of thing called the fiddler in question. And he's interviewing and doing demos and things with a particular fiddle, uh, fiddle player. And he started with, um, I'm going to be the last one, but the first one was um, Deanie Richardson, great bluegrass fiddle player uh, with sister Sadie. Mm -hmm. She plays with, you know, Bob Seeger and Patty Lovelace and she's phenomenal. And Patty, or, I mean, excuse me, Deanie was teaching at the end Peacock Rag. And somebody kind of complained that maybe Peacock Rag wasn't like a super common jam tune. So what's the point? And Brandon and I were talking about it afterwards. And I was like, it doesn't matter if you never play Peacock Rag. The chord progression that, that Peacock Rag has in it is such an important chord progression in terms of improvisation and, and, and practicing licks and moving from one chord to another that whether or not you play that particular tune it's a great thing to understand because it makes you a better musician and so to me the, the three by five cards are a lot of those kinds of things it's like i may never even understand or or replicate a little you know one of those little rhythmic pieces that he notates on one of those cards but just to know that if I hear something that's like a little phrase or a little rhythm, I should jot that down because that may come in handy for some other thing that I just don't even know exists yet. You know, that's, that's what I think is so amazing about it. Well, I have to ask you, do you have a pocket full of cards now? I absolutely do not. I, <laughs> okay. I have a mother who was a bookkeeper. So I have <laughs> a notepad that has a ledger. It's got two columns and yeah. I like a two column system and I put things on both sides of the column. Um, sometimes it's, you know, ideas on one side and notes on the other or titles or, you know, things like that. But I love that little ledger thing is very familiar and comforting to me because I saw them in my house growing up all the time. So that's my, but that's my version of yeah. it. You know what I mean? Because that's where I come from. I come I'm, I'm the, a child of a bookkeeper. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, my yeah. my weakness, It you know, I use the cards a lot for note-taking, certainly phone messages and scheduled things, and they're just, I use it for that, but I always feel like I'm hurting for space, and I've gotten really addicted to these little six-by-nine spiral notebooks that you buy, like, five at a time for, you know, exactly 50 cents a piece, and they're just, they're everywhere. And my yep. son, would he's now, uh, uh 12 and a half, but when he was uh, two, three, four years old, he started grabbing up these books and he would just fill them up. 
just fill them with stuff. And a lot of them that I pick up now, I think it's a, a brand new book and I, I look at it and it's completely full. Where he is, he's written a book or a story or something completely filled, you know, 120 pages in this book. And I'm like, oh, rats, I got to find me a blank one here somewhere. But it's, isn't, it's good isn't habit. Isn't that though. cool? Isn't that the coolest? My, um, my grandfather that I had spoken about earlier, his girlfriend, the last, you know, his partner for the last about 20 years of his life was a uh she was a nurse and so she got those little uh drug company notepads yeah. all the time yeah. and when he died we looked inside the cupboards and he had individual pieces of paper from those drug company notepads taped inside every cabinet door and you know what they were they were um the names of the roses that he had planted in the front yard Interesting. and you know the the kinds of you know plants that were in the backyard whatever it might be but it was that was his filing system right. you know and right. and just this idea that we need these systems it's we have so much information coming in oh god too much too much and so i feel like i don't want to i don't want to not take in the information or i don't I don't want to ignore it, but putting it somewhere makes room for the new information, but make sure that you don't, that you don't lose it, you know? And it's, it's just so important as a, as a teacher and someone who works with adult learners, like I said, one of the things I tell them too is make lists of the tunes that you know, and then tab out the first few notes um, so that you have, you know, that you have reminders. There is no, there is no shame in a jam of having a little list of, of reminders of, right. oh yeah, I wanted right. to play this tune. I wanted to, there is nothing wrong with that. A jam is supposed to be about people coming together to make the best music that they can possibly make as a group to try to, to, you know, to strive to be greater than the sum of their parts. Right. And so if everybody's bringing a system into it that can help them elevate, what is wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, There's no all. shame in that, you know? Yeah. And I like the permanence of, of paper and pencil yes. uh, compared to digital things. I mean, jotting things in your iPhone, what are you going to do when it breaks, you know, or, you that's know. right. And I've, I've got, I mean, I don't know how many computers have gone to the road and, you know, chunked in the trash over the years. Totally. I've had, I got my first Mac in uh, right after that Super Bowl commercial, what is it, 86 or something? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know how many computers I've had, you know, 15, maybe 20. And no telling what great creations or thoughts or whatever just went with those hard drives. Probably some, there's probably some Bitcoin went away on some of those too. You know, back when it was 50 cents or something. A fortune, but, a fortune in money and creativity lost. Yeah. The yeah. landfills, I know. The other thing that, that I just want to point out to the listeners, just like they need to hear what I say. Um, yeah. There is some magic in writing things down or drawing them, charting them. Uh, draw, you know, if you're going to build a, a doghouse, just draw on a little sketch of it before you do it. There's something about the act of putting pencil to paper that embeds things deeper in the brain. 
Absolutely. Well, it's not just something that's science. It's really, um, it is a proven fact. And I, I also think, and that speaks to one of my biggest teaching principles, which is use all the senses, use everything available to you, make it tactile, make it, you know, listen, um, you know, speak it, you know, all those things to me, there is, I, <laughs> when I was 19, I was, uh, going to college I, and I was living in Davis, California, and I decided to leave Davis and move back to Chico, California, where I had been previously. And I borrowed my stepmother's Jeep Cherokee and I rented a little U-Haul trailer that went on the hitch, you know, in the <laughs> yeah. back. Yeah. And I lived in a little fourplex, just a tiny little, con or, you know, apartment complex. And it had a very small parking lot. And I pulled in and I packed that sucker up and had all my stuff in there, you know, all my Pier 1 Papasan chairs and everything <laughs> you can imagine in 1994 that would be in that trailer. And I went to back out and I couldn't do it. I couldn't make it work in my brain. I, you know, turn the wheel one way, of course, the trailer goes the other way, whatever. <laughs> right. So I still had the key to the apartment and I, I got a piece of pen, uh, a pencil and a piece of paper. And I went back up to the apartment and I just sat on the floor and I drew it <laughs> and I, I drew the parking lot, and my little Cherokee and my trailer. And then I put arrows for, okay, if I turn the wheel this way, that makes the trailer go that way. So I'll do three of those and two of this and one of the other. And then I walked back down, got in the Jeep Cherokee and I pulled that sucker out of there. I just, I did it. Yeah. And, and I, that lesson stuck with me forever that there it is. And I tell my students all the time, I do not give out tab or sheet music at, at this point anymore, ever. However, I do encourage my students to, if I send them a video or that kind of thing, to go ahead and tab some of, that, some of it out themselves, right, you know, right. as a part of the learning process. Because some, for some people, that is what's going to spark the, re, the retaining of, the retention is the word I was looking for, the retention of the information. And some people can skip that entirely, but it's, it's a really great idea if you're having trouble holding on to the information. Yeah, you know, I've had, I agree. I've had students before who were just having trouble memorizing a tune. Just just couldn't, mm -hmm. could not, you know, and they've been looking at the notation or tab too much. I'm trying to break them of that. I'm like, okay, let's turn this thing over. Let me just hear yep. you play it. Don't get, don't get it out. Just play it for me. Play me a little of Salt Creek or something. Yep. Can't remember. Can't remember. I'm like, okay, here's what you need to do. Go home and write it out. That's Just, it. And don't look, don't copy the music. You're only allowed to look at the music when you can't remember what you're trying to write. Then right. you can peek. You go back and forth. You're always challenging yourself. And mm -hmm. after you've written it out once, just turn the page and do it again. Write it. And once you've written it once or twice, I used to do this in college with you're trying to memorize all these facts and figures and dates and Sure. formulas, I would just write it, write it, write it, write it. And a lot of note, you know, in college, people would sit there and read their notes, read their notes over and over and over. And I would just transcribe my notes from memory, you know. Right. And it burns it in. It really does. It really you don't does. need the paper. Yeah. I, the other thing that, you know, that I do 
with students is we learn everything in two bar sections. And I, I stole the naming convention from Brian Wickland, who wrote the American Fiddle Method books. And Brian's a great teacher, a good guy. Um, and he, he refers to the sections as horse, donkey, horse, cow. And <laughs> so uh, because I don't give out any tab or, um, or, or standard notation, we learn everything call and response in sections. So, you know, for old Joe Clark, the horse section is Da, 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 da. and then the donkey section is da, 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 da. then back to the horse section because the first and third sections often repeat in traditional music yeah. da, 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 da. and then the cow section da, 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 da. and the cow section is named that i assume because that's for the cows coming home you know so oh. we come back we come back home and what i find is that by teaching those things and by by pointing out the patterns in the melodies that it helps people because if they've learned the horse section they've actually learned half the part right. already because the horse is going to repeat the other thing i use it for is i use it for um improvisation so i'll say to somebody go ahead and play the horse and donkey section pretty straight but when you come back for the second horse then you can kind of take off a little bit you know and it gives them a template for those kinds of things so i'm always looking for ways to make people less afraid of not staring at a piece of paper because people see coming from teaching the fiddle is a little bit different than some of the other instruments because if you're teaching the five string banjo most often people are coming to the five string banjo because they want to play like Earl. It's just a pretty narrow yeah. Yeah, fair goal, you know, but when you're teaching the fiddle, a lot of times I have people who played classical for 10 years when they were a kid, then they got mad at it and they were like, never again. And then, you know, they were 50 years old and they saw, Oh brother, where art thou? And they were like, wait a minute, but there's something else I could do. But now I'm not only am I teaching them to play an instrument, I've got to unlearn the other habits the you know, scales played a certain way that, that we learn in classical music. And of course the, you know, the attachment to the sheet music. And, yeah. and it's funny because what I coming back to the three by five cards, the idea that it's a different way of learning than it. So I find it really helpful to, you know, for the classical students to see the three by five thing, because it's like, would you ever have learned your Bach pieces or your Vivaldi pieces this way? No, you wouldn't. So let's just put that aside and let's look at a whole different way of attaining the information, yeah. you know, and retaining the information. It's, it's, I, it's really fun. You know, it's, it's exciting. Yeah. I've said, uh, you know, over and over and over that, you know, teaching is as much, I learn as much as I learn more than the student in most 100%. cases. And I, I, I enjoy the teaching because, you know, I'm interested in trying to figure out what actually works and what works mm -hmm. for this person might not work for that person. And it's it's been a fascinating thing. I, you know, the over the last 10 years, I've done less and less one-on-one -on -one teaching because I've moved away from Atlanta down here into the sticks and there just aren't as many people sure. interested but I got into doing all these videos and, and things, which is a one-way street. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a great way to transmit, but it's not a great way to give feedback and observe. And you certainly right. can't play together, you know. 
But, you know, it, it's advantageous in case there's some guy in Antarctica that, you know, wants to learn to play the mandolin or something, you know. That's right. It is and, possible. You know, my, my Zoom workshops, I've had, I've had people from Belgium, Ireland, England, Japan, um, and it's, to, for me, you know, it is a really interesting format because everyone is muted um, through the whole thing. The format of, of the weekly workshops that I'm doing is, and I'm, I'm telling people it's a lot like an aerobics class <laughs> in that, you know, we do, it's a, it's almost all hands-on. Uh, you know, I talk for a few minutes in between if I'm setting up a new thing, but it's mostly play along with me for an hour and then they get the recording and they can just use that as like a template for their practice for the rest of the week. Yeah. But um, about once a month or so, I'll offer them the opportunity to do a homework assignment and send me a video, you know, and I'll give them some feedback on it. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think the thing that has really been interesting for me is how much I think about that workshop <laughs> throughout the week. Yeah. I think yeah. about it all the time everything I listen to, I think, oh, that's a lick I need to teach in the workshop. Or every time I, I hear someone, you know, approach an improv section a particular way or move up to third position at a particular time or whatever, I go, oh, that's something. And then of course I write it down on yeah. my little ledger thing, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all that. But I, I'm, I'm just as fascinated by this process as I ever have been about performing. And, and it's also been interesting, you know, my husband and I, um, we've been doing camps at our house now for like full time since 2012. So, um, except this year, as you can imagine. Um, and we were doing on average about 10 camps a year. Um, so flat pick, mandolin, banjo, uh, jam camps, and then old time, uh, we do a claw hammer banjo and a fiddle banjo one, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we even got an IBMA award for our camps a couple of years ago, which was really cool. Right. Um, but what has really been interesting is, you know, I've kind of got that format down. I've got that system down and we've got, you know, our camps all have waiting lists. Everything sells out all the time. And then we had to really switch gears, you know, and um, working on group learning, you know, in, t in the time of the pandemic I, you know, there are things about this that I really love. Part of it is I don't have to change 15 beds in my basement every yeah. time right. I'm done with one of these. Um, but I also miss everybody in the living room, you know, giving it their best and trying and, you know, right. and some of it working and some of it not. And I, I just can't wait till, because we've been working so hard on these Zoom workshops. I cannot wait to get everybody back, you know, and and actually getting to put this stuff into practice. Cause right now we're presenting Adam Schlinker doing a weekly uh, flat pick guitar thing. And then we've got Tristan Scroggins starting with a mandolin one uh, in February. And then we're going to add claw hammer banjo uh, probably March, April, something like that. Um, what because is, you know, what is the people best... are still hungry. I'm sorry. What no, is the ahead. best place for people to go and get information? Is it fiddlestar.com? So fiddlestar.com is where you can find out everything about me and everything fiddle. Um, 
by the way, I also do weekly video series um, on all the social media. So right now I'm doing a waltz Wednesday. I do a new waltz every single Wednesday post it. I did a whole fiddle and Arthur Smith series where I did almost every single tune wow. that Arthur Smith wrote. Um, I recorded a version of it every week. I did a Texas style Tuesday one for like half a year, all that. So and all of those videos are available on fiddlestar.com and of course my YouTube channel and stuff like that. And then nationaleacousticcamps.com is for everything else. So all of our, you'll, you know, that's where you find out when we're going to be starting camps again. We really feel, we're feeling um, optimistic that uh, fall will be able to do those kinds of things. And then that's where you can also sign up for the flat pick guitar workshop and the mandolin workshop that we're offering. And then anything fiddle fiddlestar.com so those two things fiddlestar.com and nashvilleacousticcamps.com and then i'm fiddlestar everywhere facebook instagram okay. you know all that right well i really people people can see pictures of my dog lester who is much more entertaining actually than i am most of the time so. now do you only have one pet just just lester we also have three cats and they are outside um they are named gretch after the guitar oh, okay um my husband is um is the kind of head appraiser uh, and acoustic uh, vintage acoustic specialist at Carter Vintage yeah, Guitars, yeah. and um, so he felt that the cat that showed up in our front yard, as you know, when you live out in the country, this is what happens: um, cats show up, and right. so that one is the same co orange color as the Gretsch guitars, so he named him Gretsch. And then a girl who did turn out to be his sister, he decided should just be called Gretchen because that made more sense. Right. And then we have Buster Keaton, um, who is um, black and white. Yeah. Like Buster Keaton would have uh, been. Tuxedo. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, we've got three outside cats and we've got one inside Shih Tzu. And, um, and basically, yeah, I just teach fiddle uh, all day. And I teach some vocals and stuff online as well, but mostly, mostly fiddle. And, yeah, we're just really excited to get everybody back around. And, oh, and... I really, I, I really want people, if you have not gone to listen to the John Hartford Fiddle Tune Project, um, you can follow John Hartford Official on Instagram and we post clips of the album on there or whatever, but it's available on Spotify and all those kinds of things. I mean, it's Brittany Haas and Tim O'Brien and I mean, it's, it, and on and on and on and on, Ro uh, Ronnie McCurry and, uh, you know, it's such, and these are all, this is the first time any of these original John Hartford tunes were ever recorded is on this record. And there are plans to do more in the future because it's only, you know, a, a small percentage of what's in the book, um, the Mammoth Fiddle Collection. So I just, I hope people check that out. Um, they can find all that stuff at um, johnhartford.com too, by the way. Just um, And then the fiddle device cards, whatever's left over, whatever I've got is on fiddlestar.com. Yeah. Well, Megan, thanks so much for spending so much time here explaining all this stuff and giving us so much of this backstory. Um, I will put links for those of you who listening are, are listening, you know, in your car or don't have a way to write things down. You should have that three by five card handy. <laughs> if you're at a stoplight and you pull out your three by yeah. five card. That's I right. will, as usual, have these links on in the show notes. Everybody that listens knows where to find them. And of course, it'll be on the show notes over at Grass Talk Radio 
also. Anyway, Megan, thanks so much. Uh, maybe we can touch base in the future as new Absolutely. things come about. It's just an honor uh, to get to have a conversation with you. You have done, I've looked through, uh, you know, so many of your, your prior podcasts and your commitment to bringing the music to the people is just, it's what I, it's what I believe in. So to get to connect with you and uh, I just, I think what you're doing is awesome. So well, I hope well, everybody goes you. and listens to other episodes. Oh, I, I, there are some people that have listened to all of them and I should go back and listen, but there, I have to, you know, point out that there's a difference between commitment and probably should be committed, which is, <laughs> oh, that's more where I fall in. Difference, but I would also say just a fine line, my friend, a yeah. very fine line. I read that quote. What is it? I've got it on a three by five card somewhere. I swear I do. <laughs> I read it on a podcast. I probably have it. I don't have my glasses on. A fine, anyway, it's something like there's a fine line between madness and sanity, doth something, whatever. I think it might have been Shakespeare or somebody. Well, it anyway. should have been, if not. Yeah, if not, <laughs> should have been. Anyway, That's thanks a bunch. Um, luckily, the battery held up on the phone, so uh, I appreciate your time. And uh, let's get back together and, and you can update me, you know, when things get get real again, as they say. Absolutely. How far are you from Atlanta proper these days? Um, well, I say just far enough. Perfect. <laughs> um, I love it. I am approximately 100 miles south. Okay, that's not too bad. Yeah, I'm in I... the little town of Americus, Georgia, which just as a point of reference, the county is Sumter County, and right. it is the county where Plains, Georgia is. So it's the home county of jimmy carter oh it's about nine miles as the crow flies about nine miles from where i live to where he lives well you know my mom and i are um and of course there's been a big wrench in our our plans right now but we're trying to work through all the baseball stadiums and um so we've we've yet to get to a Braves game. So if yeah. we if we make it down there one of these days, you and I'll have to meet in the middle and play a tune at least. Yeah, yeah, happy to do it. That would be that would be so much fun. That would be great. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, and I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, holler if you need anything, and okay. uh, and stay safe. Thanks a bunch. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It's fascinating. You know, I'm, I'm just a big believer that everybody has a story. Everybody has a story, and they're all fascinating if you take the time to find out what that story is. And uh, Megan certainly has a fascinating and interesting life. And I hope you will uh, take my advice and go to her website. Go to fiddlestar.com or NashvilleAcousticCamps.com. That's the two primary places, FiddleStar.com or NashvilleAcousticCamps.com. And check out what, uh, what all they have going on over there. I think there'll be some things of interest to you. And of course, the music that we're hearing in and out throughout this episode are songs written by John Hartford. And you can acquire that music and a lot of other things over at johnhartford.com. So y'all have fun digging around, and I might even put a link to the Timothy Dexter book that I referenced. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, again, just check out the show notes for that kind of stuff. Y'all take care. I'll talk to you in the next episode. <laughs>